Welcome to the World Shapers, conversations with science fiction and fantasy authors about the creative process. I'm your host, Edward Willems, and this episode's guest, El Jaji Lamplight. Welcome to another episode of The World Shapers, the conversation podcast, where the conversation is between me and another author of science fiction and fantasy talking about their creative process. My name is Edward Willard. I am myself an author of science fiction and fantasy, as well as a lot of nonfiction. Uh, my most recent uh, novel is um, The Tangled Stars from Daw Books. Uh, it's a far future outer space science fiction heist space opera adventure featuring an AI uplifted genetically modified talking cat who um, becomes a starship captain eventually. Bit of a spoiler there, but you'll want to find out how that happens. It's a humorous novel, you might be able to tell. Uh, and yeah, it's out now. It's been out for about a year. It's available in ebook and audiobook. My other most recent release is Soul Worm, which is a new edition of my very first novel, uh, first published novel, which uh, came out just about 25 years ago and was a finalist for Best First Book at the Saskatchewan Book Awards that year. So I brought it out in a new edition this year through uh, my own Shadowpaw Press. And that's the other thing I do. I also publish science fiction and fantasy. Uh, Shadowpaw Press is uh, my main publishing company. It's a traditional royalty-paying company. And uh, uh, mostly I've published reprints up until recently. Um, <clears throat> of science fiction, that is. I've published some other original stuff that wasn't science fiction, uh, except for the uh, anthologies, the Shapers of Worlds anthologies, which feature guests of this podcast. There have been three so far. Number four is just about ready to send out to backers, and it will be out in the, to the general public in uh, January. January 23rd is the release date for that. Shapers of Worlds Volume 4 with oh, Sherry Lynn Kenyon's in there and... Uh, Jean-Louis Trudel and Lave Tidhar and just, just a great bunch of uh, authors. So uh, watch for that when it comes out. And also coming out a lot more, actually, in 2024, a lot more science fiction fantasy, uh, starting with uh, uh, The Good Soldier by Nir Yaniv, which is kind of Catch-22 meets Starship Troopers. It's a military sci-fi satire. There's also The Headmasters, which is a YA dystopian science fiction novel by Mark Morton. Uh, later on, there is a major uh, announcement that I will make in my next podcast because I can't quite make it yet, but I do have a major release uh, coming out uh, from a major author uh, in May. I also have uh, two new books by the late, great uh, Canadian science fiction fantasy author Dave Duncan, uh, The Traitor's Son and Corridor to Nightmare. Those are coming out in May as well. And then next fall, I have two new science fiction uh, books lined up. Uh, Ashmi's Song by Brad C. Anderson, who's been a guest of the podcast and whose novel Duotero I republished through Shadowpaw Press. And also The Sunrunners by James Bowe. Uh, that'll also be coming out next fall. So I've got a number of new titles uh, lined up this year. And actually, the reprints I'm doing this year are mostly not science fiction or, or fantasy, but I do uh, publish stuff in a lot of different genres. I also have a, a picture book coming up and a poetry book, poetry reprint, uh, non-fiction reprint. So uh, lots of stuff coming from Shadowpaw Press. If you want to check it all out, uh, check out shadowpawpress.com. And then my other publishing company is Endless Sky Books. Uh, it also has a, a, a new release uh, actually already out called Loggerheads, uh, um, a memoir, which is uh, memoirs of a tree faller from Clarequit Sound. And 
in Vancouver Island, whose career disappeared with the environmental protests there against logging 30 years ago. So this is kind of his look back at that and what it all meant to him and to the other people who worked in the forest at that time. Uh, that's out now. And, uh, oh, I, I did forget to mention there is another reprint science fiction trilogy, actually, uh, coming out uh, officially December 1st, I believe. It's uh, called The Empire of Kaz. It's by uh, Leslie Godala. The first two books were published by Del Rey back uh, late 80s, I think. And the third book was uh, originally published just a few years ago by another publisher, but they've all uh, come back to her and now they've come to me and I'm bringing out that whole uh, trilogy uh, in, uh, in December. Uh, the three books are called Cat's Pawn, Cat's Game and Cat's Gambit. So, so look for that as well at the shadowpotpress.com website. And if you go to the Endless Sky books, you can see some of the, the other things uh, that I publish there. And Endless Sky books is where I help people with uh, self-publishing. Uh, and then selected ones of those uh, get distributed as Shadowpaw Press is uh, nationally through uh, the Distco, which is a major distribution uh, network up here. So yeah, that's that's what keeps me busy. <laughs> I do hope to do a lot more of my own writing soon, uh, and I certainly have to do some because I have a short story that will be coming out in one of the Zombies Needs Brains um, anthologies that uh, he kickstarts. Joshua Palmatier has been a guest on this podcast as well. Kickstarts over there. So I've got a story in the one coming up called uh, Last Ditch. Last Ditch, I think, not Last Chance. But anyway, uh, that's coming up, and you know, as soon as I get around to writing it. Okay, well, there you go. That That's what I'm doing and keeping busy with. And uh, the other thing I'm doing is this podcast. So let's get on with it. <laughs> this episode's guest is L. Jaggi Lamplighter. L. Jaggi Lamplighter is the author of the YA fantasy series The Books of Unexpected Enlightenment, the third book of which was nominated for the YA Dragon Award in 2017, and the fourth book of which won the first YA Ribbit Award, and the fifth book of which also won two small awards. She's also the author of the Prospero's Children series, Prospero Lost, Prospero in Hell, and Prospero Regained. She has a brand new book, Guardians of the Twilight Lands, that we'll be talking about today. She's also published numerous articles and short stories. She also has an anthology of her own works, In the Lamplight. She edits for Superversive Press and teaches the art and craft of writing. And when she's not writing, she switches to her secret, I we should all have a secret identity, <laughs> as wife and stay-home mom in Centerville, Virginia, where she lives with her dashing husband, author John C. Wright, who was one of my dashing guests early on in the podcast, and their four children, Orville, Ping Ping Eve, Roland Wilbur, and Justinian Oberon. So, uh, Jaji, welcome to the uh, podcast. I should have updated that because Superversive Press shut a <laughs> while ago, and the art of uh, craft of writing is now a book and a video series. But other than that, that's correct. Oh, it's what you no, said. I know, me. it's my own fault. <laughs> I did update part of it, but I hadn't obviously updated enough of it. I actually should probably. I actually knew that about Superversive Press now that I think about it because I was in one of their yeah. anthologies that got picked up by somebody else so well that's okay uh, anyway got that cleared up so we'll start at the very beginning uh, well the first place we're going to start is is by saying that we have met i always like to mention that if it's happened we met once upon a time in atlanta at that's a right. dragon con which must have been 2018 or 17 i yeah, can't I think remember it which was 2018 um, i think and that sounds right only time i've been i found it interesting but um too many people for my liking. i must say meeting you was one of the highlights of my trip i really enjoyed meeting you 
I had this, uh, I had one panel, I think, or two panels, and there was hardly anybody there. And then, you know, of course, it's packed for all the uh, entertainment-related panels and all of that. And my, my biggest memory of it is shuffling through the connecting corridors from one part of the building to the next and feeling like I was the an extra in that Star Trek episode on the overpopulated planet where he's on a <laughs> where he's on a, a a dummy of the enterprise but he sees these people shuffling by shoulder to shoulder outside <laughs> ah, make yeah, room make room yeah. so uh, anyway that that's when we met and I enjoyed our conversation then as well so I'm looking forward to this one as well so let's let's start at the very beginning as I said a very good place to start and uh, tell me about yourself. Where were you born and grew up? And, and how did, specifically, did you get started with, I presume you started as a reader, we almost all do, reading and writing. So I was born in Manhattan, though I didn't live there very long. We moved to uh, North Salem, New York, when I was three. And I think we'd moved out of Manhattan before that. Uh, and so I grew up in North Salem, New York, which is about 60 miles north of New York City. It's all orchards and horse farms, but you're still like a quick train ride, you know, from going to see arts in the city. So it was a really nice place to grow up. My mother had been a, a ballet dancer before she got married. She'd actually danced with the Bolshoi one time. And my mm. father was a, had grown up as a Jew and he, in World War II, he ended up working for Stars and Stripes and he was one of the reporters that covered the Nuremberg trial. And he had such a, a mm -hmm. terrible experience with it that he became a, a Zen Buddhist because he was looking for peace. So when I, as I grew up, I had, my dad was a Buddhist and my mother uh, was, you know, taught ballet. So that, <laughs> that was where I got started. <laughs> but my dad had been a reporter before he, you know, decided kind of to go in another direction. And my mom had written stories for her, like she'd written plays that were put on in her uh, high school. And my mom got to college in New York. They just graded five points off if your spelling was bad. And in Illinois, where she went to college, they graded off for every misspelled word, and she was a really bad speller. So she had to leave creative writing and go into another field. Uh, but they mm -hmm. both had done enough writing that there was a lot of talk about writing and a lot of reading and a lot of appreciation of it. So, you know, I, I got going at a very young age. <laughs> A lot of books yes, in the house. Yes, we had a lot of books and reading was encouraged. And my father would go to Barnes & Noble when he was in New York for about once a week and buy books. And then, you know, he wouldn't always get around to unpacking them. So sometimes we had two or three copies of the same book that he had been meaning to read, but had forgotten he'd already bought. But it it made for really interesting, you know, all sorts of interesting things in, in the library in the house. So. You know, it was a very enjoyable. My mom would tell us stories all the time when we were smaller, too, which I think is really probably what got me started. Were there any uh, early books that you remember that were particularly influential? My very earliest memories are mainly of her stories. But when I was around 10-ish, somewhere between you know, 8 and 12, uh, I started reading. I remember my uncle read us the first part of Once and Future King the funny part that was made into mm. the sword in the stone. And he gave me a copy of Alan Gardner's, the weird stone of Brzezingman. And my cousin told me about these new authors I'd never heard of called Lewis and Tolkien. So my dad brought, <laughs> bought those books for me when I was 10, thinking that I might enjoy them. 
And he would give them to me after I did my chores once a week. But one of the chores was vacuuming in the office where he kept the books. So I would sneak and read ahead <laughs> while I was cleaning. <laughs> but I think those books and Lloyd Alexander's Pridery books, uh, Pridane books, uh, are like the ones that I remember along with Ursi. Those are the really, the real ones that really codified in my mind. The only other book I remember from when I was younger is that I once read a book about a fox and a book about a rabbit within like the same two weeks. And I was struck by the fact that in the book about the fox, I wanted him to catch the rabbit. In the book about the rabbit, I didn't want the fox to catch the rabbit. <laughs> and that really kind of stuck with me. Oh, I guess I should say I didn't read until I was seven or eight really well. I mean, I tried and I wasn't good at it. And what finally got me going was Nancy Drew. One summer, I just read all the Nancy Drew books that were available. So I actually have a kind of yes. a love of mystery, even though, you know, I don't really write or read it that often. But it, it stuck with me and it's kind of a sense of, of how you want to put clues together to un unravel a mystery and things like that. It's funny how sometimes it can be one specific something like that that suddenly turns kids yeah. on to reading. My my daughter was not a huge reader going in, you know, grade two or three or somewhere along there. And then she discovered the uh, Warriors books yeah. about the, the cats. And, and that's what got her suddenly turned her into a huge reader, which she remains my to younger, this day. So, yeah, my younger yeah, son, it, it was Redwall. And he's one of two. He was yeah, 12 and he still couldn't read. And he was put in a room where there was nothing else to do. And he read the Redwall books and since then, you know, he's fine. And he's not the only boy I've heard of who was, the other one was nine and Redwall was what got him. So, you know, I recommend Redwall for boys. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of those books you mentioned were very, you know, influential. Uh, the Priding books, uh, Earthsea, all of those are all things I read as a, as a younger reader as well. So they're very, very familiar titles, and I, I had some of the same uh, impact on me. So when did you start writing? My first actual thing that I think would count is that at age 12, I wrote the first chapter or two of a book. And I kind of, you know, worked on that on and off for a long time after that. But but my actual first, I sat down at a typewriter, and I typed a chapter was age 12. My first short story, I've told this story on here many times. Of course, one does tend to repeat oneself when one has a podcast. But um, my first short story was Castor Glass Hypership Test Pilot, <laughs> written when I was that 11. That sounds so. like the kind of first stories that John has, you know. John has not only stories, but <laughs> so he could... was doing comics back then. And he still has his comics. And you can see where he learned to do perspective. And so he had, you know, his stories had pictures, but he had they had very similar themes to, to what you said there. Well, you can tell I had two older brothers who read science fiction, so yeah. it was in the house. I, I still have, some here I have Bob Silverberg's, uh, Robert Silverberg's uh, Revolt on Alpha C, which has my big brother's name in it, but it's one of the first science fiction books oh, I can remember reading. And, that's cool. You know, it's uh, funny. I he wrote it when he was 19. It was published when he was 19, so that was kind of annoying over the years. But <laughs> I did read a lot of science fiction also, but like nothing's coming to mind as an act, like a particular title. The one that often comes to mind is, I think it was called Tomorrow's Children. It was a collection, I think, mm -hmm. of short stories by Asimov. Yeah. I remember yeah. that book and as so well. I remember yeah. that, but I was a huge Star 
Trek fan, and I read the Star Trek books, you know, where James Blish wrote up the, uh, the episodes and Alan Dean Foster, I think, wrote up the cartoon versions. I read those and I, I watched Star Trek. So I, I had the, the science fiction influence also, but a lot of the books, the titles didn't stick in my mind at that age. I would just read a book and I, I wouldn't really, you know, I remember when I one day suddenly realized that books have particular authors and maybe I should know who they were. Because before that, I might have known C.S. Lewis and Lloyd Alexander and Tolkien, but a lot of times I just read the book and I put it back. And I didn't even look to see who had written it, you know? I had a teacher that told me uh, when I didn't know the author, said, well, that just shows you're just, you're, you have to know the author, otherwise you're just reading for escapism. And I thought, well, what's wrong with escapism? <laughs> Tolkien has a great essay on that. The other, the other yeah, science <laughs> fiction book I remember well is Joan Vinge's short stories because – that was the moment when I just dismissed the argument that women couldn't write these things. You know, people would say that women can't write science fiction, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then when I read her book, I was like, well, obviously they can. <laughs> so I never really thought about it after that. I mean, I don't mean I didn't consider it if someone brought it up. I mean, it didn't worry me after that. I never thought about that because Andre Norton was one yeah. of my favorite writers and obviously she yeah, was a woman. Yeah, so that's true. I, I didn't read her till later. So, you know, I hadn't, and I don't think I knew at that age that, that, that she was a woman, you know. So how did your writing progress then from that first well, chapter? Slowly. <laughs> I, I was really bad with spelling and grammar, just like my mom and my kids, I might add. <laughs> and, I, I would write here and there, and I, I wrote some papers that teachers liked, you know, you know, because I would take a creative t twist on a paper for high school. And I wrote a couple short stories that I had the rejection notes that I got from uh, FNSF hanging on my wall at college, you know. <laughs> hey, I got rejected from a real, a real magazine, you know. But it, it was a long time coming until I had something that was worth reading. Uh, I went to St. John's in Annapolis, which is the great books program. So I was absor absorbing all these great ideas, but I, I didn't really get to being able to write them again, you know, put them out in an interesting way until a little later. When I left college, I went to work for my dad and he gave me two hours every morning out of an eight hour day to work on my writing. And then six hours I worked for him. And I really think it was during a lot of that was spent with me trying to improve my grammar. I would copy passages out of Tolkien or some other author I like and write them over and over and try to figure out like how it worked. And I went and taught myself how to diagram a sentence and other things. I, I had a pretty good high school education. When I compared it with other people at St. John's, I thought my English classes had been better, but somehow it had escaped me. So it was during this period of, of two or three years that I was working for my dad that I really kind of worked on the craft side of writing. And then I started working on, you know, short stories and books. And it still took me a long time after that. Uh, my, you know, I did get a short story or two published in the 90s, but my first novel didn't get published until 2007. And I graduated from college in 85. So that was a long period during which I threw out well over a million words, you know, and, and uh, there's one book I still haven't published that I've rewritten 14 times. <laughs> so I mean, not every time was more than a chapter or two, you know, but 
it took me a long time to get to the point where I kind of could get it to work. But once I did, you know, then I hit a point where after that, it became a lot easier. You know, I went from writing a short story in six months to usually it probably takes me two or three days to a week to, you know, down uh, if I have a good idea when I get started. Well, you learned yeah, to write by writing. Yeah, exactly. Writing. I, you, I tell people that you all learned the time, to write so. by writing. That's what I did. I mean, I just kept writing. I wanted to do it. I, I knew it wasn't that good, but I knew I had good ideas, so I just kept working at it. The book I sold to tour, I started in 1992. I put it aside for a few years and picked it up again in the late 90s. I rewrote it six times between when I submitted it to what was at the time my agent, but Tor just hired him as an editor. And when he finally accepted it about six years later, and it really improved during that time. I mean, the thing they <laughs> bought was much, much better. By the time they bought it, I'd gone over it so many times. It was really tightly woven with little hints at the beginning that tied into things that happened at the end. You know, the kind of thing you can only do when you really have the opportunity to write the entire three books ahead of time. But, uh, you know, the thing I sent him in, in when I first sent it off in 2001 or 98, whenever I first sent it, just was not, was really not that good. It was just, uh, so it was during that period that I think I, it, whatever it was suddenly made sense to me. And well, what else? Well, I was just going to oh, say, sorry. part of it was that my husband and I started, I started writing down insights we had, like little something would come to us about how you do something about writing and I'd write it down. And that was really helpful. And I also, uh, Donald Moss's book, writing the breakout novel was extremely helpful to me. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but the, the one line explanation of it is Moss was a New York editor who decided he wanted to know if the breakout books were better than the stuff that came over the transom. So he read a hundred books that broke out, broke out being decided defined as a book that did a lot better than expected without a lot of advertising. And he decided they were better and he analyzed why. And that way of analyzing it really made sense to me. And I was able to really use what he, what he said. I even took a, a live class with him once uh, and it really turned around what I was doing because I was just able to understand the principles of, of how he put across the storytelling, which I had not gotten from other books on writing. So that I'm, I'm very grateful for. So clearly you were working on writing all that time. What, what else were you doing? You weren't making no. a living as a writer. <laughs> um, well, in the later period, I was a mom, but in the earlier periods, uh, I worked for Britannica at one point. I worked daycare at one point. I was a, an IT tech for Child Support Enforcement's inter, uh, national network in America for a few years. Uh, I really liked the computer stuff. You know, I, I, I dropped out of that when I, my second son was born, but uh, I enjoyed doing it. Um, so that's kind of what I was doing during the period before that. And one of the reasons that, you know, my writing didn't move ahead all that much is that during that period, it was hard to get time to write when I, you know, at one point I had two jobs, you know, but uh, once I was at home with the kids, while I still was very busy, it was a little easier to get periods of time that I could put aside uh, to work on the writing. So the, I think that made a big difference too. Were there 
like did you ever do any formal creative writing classes or, or workshops or did you have a writing group or well, any of that I, kind of I stuff? Well, I did take a class with Donald Moss once. It was like a two-day class in, in D.C. and I live kind of close right. to D.C. So that I enjoyed. But mainly I did, I was part of a writing group uh, that was really, really helpful and that we all, just having someone read something so that you're encouraged to get something for the next session was really good. Uh, uh, Danielle Ackley McPhail was a member of that. Uh, she, she's a writer now and there's, there's a couple of other people who have books out, you know, who were part of this little group. Um, it was, they were people we'd met up, kind of gotten together through, uh, some of the, con the science fiction conventions on the East coast. Uh, and that I really appreciated. I, I, I'm really grateful to those guys. And I also had one or two friends who would just read what I wrote even if I rewrote it. And that was really a wonderful thing. And I still have someone like that is really wonderful because you, you're like, ah, oh, you know, I think I will sit down and work another hour because then I can show it to my friend, you see. So I find it very encouraging to have somebody who, who will read things at the, I guess what you'd call an alpha reader rather than a beta reader. Well, let's uh, talk about uh, the actual process now that you've, you know, perfected it after all those years of struggle. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so the, the latest book is in the Prospero's Children no, series. No, the latest one is one of the books of Unexpected it's... Enlightenment. Oh, okay. I got that confused. Yeah. Um, the Prosper, the Prosper right. well, series let's... is three books and it kind of ends there. I, I do have a idea for something that could go from there. And I have a friend who's a writer who loves the series. She's not doing much writing right now because she has young kids, but I have told her you know, when they grow up, she wants to, she could, I'll give her the outline. She could write the next book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this, this is, is in your other series. Yeah. All right. Well, um, the best place to start then would probably be with a precy or synopsis of what the series is about without giving away anything you don't want to give away and specifically what this latest okay. book is about. Well, it's, I, I, I always find it difficult to describe the series. One reason is that the main things the series is about haven't come on stage yet. So I can't, you know, just sum it up by saying it's that. Um, <laughs> so this series. That would be a yeah, spoiler. Really would. <laughs> uh, this series is, it's in, I'll call it Harry Potter-esque. It's in a similar kind of genre. Harry Potter, but it's not really that much like Harry Potter, the same way like Red Badge of Courage and Gone with the Wind both take place in the Civil War, but they're really not that much like each other. <laughs> it's about a British girl who goes to an American magic school that is on the Hudson River right by Storm King Mountain in, in New York. And she begins to find out that the same way that the world of the lies, the wizards, sorcerers as they're called here, hide from normal everyday mundane people that there is a whole other world that's hidden from them uh that that's their memories of all the whole planet's memories have all been erased for one thing this takes place on a version of earth where there's no christians no muslims no jews no god no angels no demons nothing like that and they exist but they, it's the all memory of them have been erased uh for several hundred years and she begins to find out that there's things that have been hidden because she has a perfect memory. And if she remembers back, certain types of hiding things don't trick her. 
So she begins to see things other people have not have not seen and, and get through into places she wasn't supposed to go and things like that. Uh, but that's only kind of the, that's like the background story. And the more active story is about a young girl going to school and trying to make friends and she's not very good at it. <laughs> uh, though she does make a few good friends. And trying to deal with both the daily life of school and the fact that somebody's trying to destroy the world and nobody believes her. <laughs> That's like a classic setup. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And it, it doesn't get across that it's both funny and kind of, I mean, it's it's part school story. And then, but there's, it's like a girl's YA book. They're very popular, but it's got more fighting in it and more action in it than is typical. <laughs> Because it came from a role-playing game that was run by men for men, but I was there. <laughs> so, you know. Well, that was there, that was the next question was, what was the impetus yeah, so, for this So series? it was based on a role-playing game. And the original role-playing game was based on a game I made up, but my friend liked the idea, so he was running it. And I had made it up originally to run for my children. And the idea was you're at Hogwarts, but the other kids are from every book and story that ever had a wizard or a witch in it. He hmm. said it 25 years after the end of the Hogwarts books, which is why it was set in 2023. Uh, it was, I guess it was 24 years when we started, but it would have been 25, you know, at a certain point. And basically, I mean, it was set at Hogwarts, but it really was a Nine Princes of Amber game where the background universe had the the, the Amber family. So you have a situation where all the characters come from other worlds and there's this greater fight that's going on in the greater universe. And then you have your, your school story. And of course, when I decided to write it up and I decided to write it up because my husband and I both fell utterly in love with this, with this idea for this game. And I said, okay, you know, it deserves to be a book, but I didn't realize when I started that, of course I had to invent entirely new world, not only, <laughs> for my wizard school and my wizard world, but for every character who came from a different world. I mean, the guy who was <laughs> Superman couldn't be Superman, and the girl who was Veronica Mars couldn't be Veronica Mars. So I've spent, you know, years making up the whole universe of, of and in, the, the setup is that the world tree's fallen and most of the, of the planets are gone, so there's only like 50 left. So I didn't have to make up, you know, as big a universe as there might have been at one time. But uh, I, I did, I've, you know, I have had to sit there and, and really work on, and I've been inspired a lot by the anime One Piece because after about the first hundred episodes of One Piece, each place they go could be its own entire science fiction or fantasy series. The guy gets so inventive with the locations. And so John and I will watch the show. We've been watching it for years and we'll go, we got to up our game. <laughs> He's 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 beating us. You know? So I've been trying to you know put the same kind of thought into some of these other worlds. What's going on, you know, in the greater universe that I I feel is going into into One Piece that I'm appreciating so much. Uh, so really, you could say that the thing is inspired by many many sources. I mean, there there were characters that came from Marvel. There were characters that came from books. You know, so I've been having to kind of remake each of them up to give them a background that that's now fully in the universe they're in now but keeps whatever quality they can in the original that seemed to work for the story 
So I don't necessarily have to keep any qualities that, you know, the character might have had in its original story that don't apply. But if they were, you know, had a particular talent or if they had a particular personality quality and that came into the ongoing story that that's now the story of the series, I had to figure out how to keep that while changing all the, you know, filing off all the serial numbers and changing all the specifics. And I had a wonderful time so that, making up my magic school, which I based on the college I went to. It's a little different than most other mm -hmm. colleges. So I said, you know, there's there's British type magic schools and there's American type magic schools and there's creepy gothic magic schools. I'm going to try something different. So, so the very specific uh, impetus for this particular series on more general terms this is this is the classic question where do you get your ideas what typically inspires uh you to to craft a story or, or a novel series when it's not based on a role-playing game that you <laughs> that you invented well i can definitely talk to to that because while i you know a, a certain part of the characters and over plot came from this other background everything else i've had to make up from scratch uh and a, about half of the plot lines are things that I introduce and half of it are the original and kind of woven together. So I, when I'm not taking it from, you know, something like my friend's game, uh, I really try to go back to mythology and legends and, and fairy tales and things like that. I, both of my series, both the Prosper series and this series, take place in a world that has every possible fa fantasy creature you could imagine. In other words... You know, if you go to to Arabia, there's jinn, and if you go to Norway, there's there's trolls. And I, I try to people the landscape with the things that the people of that landscape believe were were there. You know, uh, for instance, I have a friend who is the storyteller who every Halloween recites the uh, legend of Sleepy Hollow in the church in Sleepy Hollow in New York, where it supposedly took place and he wrote a uh -huh. whole book on lore and legend of uh i don't remember if it's lore and legend of sleepy hollow or, or i said highlands or something like that i can't remember the title right now but um that book when i i wrote a one of my books i think it's not it's volume three the uh rachel and the many splendid dreamland uh has a Halloween scene where she goes to the dead men's ball and dances with ghosts of people who died on the Hudson in, in the days when the shipping was very dangerous at that area because they call it storm King mountain because there was so much lightning and storms in that area. So a lot of ships went down there, uh, including in my background, the, the, uh, uh, the flying Dutchman ended up there. Uh, and, so I was able to go through this book and just really enjoy having all these creepy and interesting things that are mentioned in the original Legend of Sleepy Hollow story because they tell a lot of ghost stories in the story to freak out Ichabod Crane. Uh, many people think Legend of Sleepy Hollow is a ghost story. It's not. It's a story about one rival trying to drive another rival out of town. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I really enjoyed putting those things into the story and weaving them in and having having her encounter them in one way or another. And she runs into the headless horseman himself and almost gets in you know trouble from that on, on, when she's trying to get home. And 
So that kind of thing is a lot of how I like to, you know, I really look at the area. So that's the Hudson Highland area. And then uh, in this latest book that just came out, I spent 20 chapters with her back in England and, and she lives on Dartmoor. So there are wonderful things on Dartmoor. There's giants, there's witches, there's puka. I mean, you know, so I had a really fun time with that too. Uh, the cover shows her confronting the river dart who is known in England. There's a little, a little jingle, uh, dart, dart, crew dart, cruel dart. Every year she takes a heart, you know, if they say one person dies there every year. So she, she's confronting the, the, uh, the nymph of the river who, uh, is trying to drown a little boy and she's trying to save him. So I had, I really enjoy that kind of thing where you look at where your story is and you look at what creatures might be there. And because Roanoke, where the island, where the school takes place, was a floating island before it got moored in the Hudson, I can have fairy creatures from all over the world because the island had floated all around the oceans before it, it settled. So uh, I, it's, it allows me to have not only, you know, American Indian and Dutch creatures, but also ones that might have come from Japan or some other place that, you know, the island went by once. So once you had the, for, for any book that you write, once you have the, the, uh, the seed, what is your planning outlining process look like? Are you, uh, this is a fairly, there's a lot of world building going on, but what's your, uh, your actual uh, outlining if you do that what does it look like how much planning do you do ahead of time well that's an interesting topic i have some strong uh opinions about outlining <laughs> come from my first i like strong opinions. I, I have uh <laughs> and, and they, they go like this when i wrote my first book and it's happened to me other times i i wrote an i, I wrote a few chapters and i was going really well and i wrote an outline and then i stopped writing and I've seen this happen to several friends who were writing things I really enjoyed and they got partway in and they wrote out their outline and they stopped writing. And what happened to me was, this was back in the 90s, one day enough friends had said, hey, I really like those 12 chapters. You know, are you ever going to finish that? I went back and I tore up my outline. And suddenly I could write again. It was like I had part of the process of writing needed there to be open space. So I, I really like the description of writing that Terry Pratchett gave, where he said that it was like he could see the peaks. He knew where the peaks were, but then he would walk through the misty valleys to discover it was there. And I, I, when I teach writing, I say, if you can write an outline and write something, go for it. It's a good way to do it. But if you can't, if you find yourself stopped, tear up the outline and, and start again because maybe you went the wrong way or maybe you need that, that ability to come up with something new. So with this series, I have an overall outline because I'm following the events to some degree of the game. A lot of the game exists as emails, so I, I, I actually have dialogue. I mean, some of the dialogue in the books are written by either John or Mark or our friend Bill. Uh, John's character, he, he helps me with it occasionally. And uh, I'm always very pleased when I read him something that I wrote for his character. And he says that, you know, I've, I'm the master now. I, I, I hit it out of the park and couldn't have anything to add to it. Sometimes he'll go, oh, no, no, I think he needs to say it this way. you know. Uh, 
so I have this overall outline that acts like the peaks, but I try to keep enough kind of freedom so that I can do something like sit down and go, hey, what you know, what fairy creature might be here and add something that I find interesting along the way so that it's both heading along a certain plan and leaving room for me to be creative as I go along to make it fun. I don't know, fun may not be the right word, but the creative process is what makes you really, you want to put it down so you can share it with somebody, you know? So. It's always interesting asking that question because, you know, I'm up to episode, I don't know, you'll be number 145, I think, of authors I've talked to, and you get everybody from, I think it was Kendare Blake, he said, well, I write the first sentence and I go from there <laughs> to... Uh, um, Peter V. Brett, who I often mention, who writes 150-page outlines and then just throws yeah. it in. Yeah. I, I used to that. have an ongoing argument with another writer about you know outlining, and I believed her when she said, "Well, I do all that creative work during the outlining phase, you know." And so I think I when I took the class with Moss, he said he got just as good books from outliners and what he called organic writers. And he said the difference is that for the organic writer, the first draft is really your outline. And you do more rewriting. Hmm. And that's true of, I think, everybody except my husband who doesn't outline and never rewrites. <laughs> he just sits down and he writes from, you know, just boom. <laughs> but... Well, Asimov famously sat down and started typing and got to the end. and never Yeah, rewrote, I mean, so, so he's not the only one. But, there, you know, there's a few of them. But I, I used to do massive, massive rewrites. Nowadays, I do less, but the rewriting process, like I'll, I'll, I'll kind of write the scene quickly and then I go over again. I actually enjoy the rewriting process more than I enjoy the writing process. Well, before we get to rewriting, what does your actual writing process look like? Are you a sit down for four hours a day in your office writer or are you wander out into a coffee shop writer or are you parchment under with a quill pen under the tree in the well, backyard Well, once upon writer? a time, I had an office, <laughs> but then I got a daughter. So now I write in the living room. This has advantages as a mother and disadvantages as a writer because it means I can get to the kitchen or help. I and mean, my kids are, are all over 20 now, but one of them is like a small child. So I, I still have a lot more mothering tasks than uh, you know you normally would at this age. And they were all at home right now, which is, is kind of unusual. The, the two of them were away before this. Uh, but so I'm writing in the living room. John now works at home in the living room and one of the boys moved their desk into the living room too. So it's a kind of a busy place. So I write at night. <laughs> I don't often start until midnight and I go till like four or six in the morning. And normally I get up kind of late. Uh, and like, cause this is kind of really early morning for me. <laughs> no, no, Sorry. it's all right. It's, it's not too bad. It's just, you know, it's kind of on the early side, but um I really don't do well unless nobody's distracting me. And one of the things we're working on as a family right now with everybody home is, you know, can we get the time when I can get started to be a little earlier? Could, could people like, you know, go downstairs or head to bed earlier and I could get going at 1030 you know, so I can either get more done or go to bed earlier. Uh, so that's kind of what my process is like. And I, I both I do editing, though I'm trying to cut down on the editing. I'm editing John Starquest series right now. And then when I'm done with that, I'm hoping just just to write for a while. But um, both of them I do at night when when everybody else is is quiet. Uh, 
And so I have a couple of friends who live in places like Alaska who will, you know, email me at night and kind of keep me company if I'm, you know, need it. And otherwise, I, I just try to get the writing done then. But I... Are you a fast writer? It's a hard thing to answer. It takes me a long time to get going. Like, I, it can take me an hour of just not doing anything to get going. Once I get going, then I go pretty fast. And that's one reason why I stay up so late, because I'm usually like, well, it's going to take me until this time tomorrow to be going again. I, I think I'll put in an extra hour and, and really get something done. So usually once I actually get going, I go quickly, which makes me hope that if someday my, my daughter's engaged, you know, my, my sons will go back to college. Someday I may actually have longer periods to write and be able to get a lot more done. But that's my hope. That's what I'm working towards now. Because, you know, I'm doing it in short pieces. I'd love to have eight hours uninterrupted where I could just actually get somewhere and get the books done more quickly. When, I, when I'm actually working hard, I often get a lot done all at once. But it, it's I'm trying to come up with ways to cut down the how long it takes me to get going or just have longer periods so that it doesn't matter that it took me an hour to get going. Okay, now we can move on to revising. So you've written this draft and you're your first draft or however that works. And uh, then you said you enjoy revision. So what does your revising process look like? And do you have alpha readers and beta readers? And I do. I do. So this is like what the typical novel looks like. So I read it. I, I, first of all, I tend to rewrite the scenes themselves. Like I'll write kind of quickly. Sometimes I'll even put, put description here. And kind of because I, I want to get my ideas down while they're all there in my head. So I'll write through, you know, the dialogue while the characters are in motion in my head and, and the basic action. And then I may rewrite the scene two or three times, you know, in the next few days before I'm, I'm happy with it. Uh, and that part I really enjoy because it, it's the rewriting period is when I'm thinking about things like, uh, are there two different strings in the scene where, you know, the, there's a plot string, but also like her reactions, uh, whatever the second string for the story would be. Are there things from the rest of the book that I could echo here by, by having a theme come out or, or a secret from later I could put in a, a throwaway line, you know? So that's what I do in, in during the rewriting period process that I really enjoy. Uh, then when I get the actual book and, and I have a, a, a you know, often read it to John or I, I have a, a friend who I used to read it to my mom, but she died on Easter in 2022. Uh, sometimes I read it to her anyway. I figure, you know, she can hear it wherever she is. <laughs> well, then reading right. out loud is I mean, part just of the a reason great way I to get a different was take that on it. Just by reading it out loud, it's another way of revising. You, you realize that something didn't make sense or wasn't clear. I, I find the, the, that action of reading out loud is very useful as part of the revising. It's great for proofreading yeah. too. I'm, I'm reading the latest anthology out loud to my wife and finding things that neither I nor the authors in their proofing of their own stories. Right, exactly. I mean, I, you so. just, you, for one thing, you don't, you don't skip as much, but for the other thing, sometimes things don't sound quite right when you read them out loud that, that seemed fine when they were on paper for some reason. Uh, but once yeah. it's done, I have a bunch of beta readers, uh, who I share it with. And it's funny because I, a number of them are, are semi or professionals in the editing field. And they're just fans of the series, so they'll read it for me. 
they never find the same mistakes. Like they'll all come back with lots of corrections, but it's almost never the same mistakes the next guy finds, which I always find to be yeah, both that's... strange and slightly embarrassing, you know? But uh, I remember once I got it back from my actual editor and I still have the same editor. He used to be a tour and he's still, you know, he still has my stuff for me. And uh, he and two other guys, I had three entire they went all the way through. They found lots of things that needed correcting because my spelling is not that great, and, you know. And when you're typing quickly, you leave out words and things like that. Uh, but but there was almost no overlap between all three of them. It was kind of funny. Um, but I also have a friend who's the guy who goes, you know, this book is too dull or this makes no sense. And he's really useful <laughs> You know, usually he generally likes it, but with book five, he didn't. And I looked at it and I realized he was right. It was, you know, it was dragging too much in parts and there wasn't enough action. So I added a couple action scenes and I shortened another part. And, uh, you know, even the people who had liked the first version thought it was greatly improved. And with this latest book, you know, I wrote part of it and my mom died and I had to take care of her estate. And then I finished it and I had forgotten to go back and put in the tie that tied the early action scenes to the villain so you know the character got attacked and i didn't ever have the scene where you find out that that attack came from the villain you know so he pointed this out and that was very valuable to me because i was able to I, I didn't need to do nearly as much rewriting for that one but i was able to go in and add a few scenes that tied the three different events together and showed that the same people were behind what was going on, which was what it was supposed to be. I mean, that's what was in my notes, but it hadn't made it onto the page because I, you know, stopped at one point. Do you have any writing ticks that you find you're always having to correct in the, the final stages? I know I have a, a couple of things that the one I often mention is that my characters have a tendency to make animal noises. So they're always growling dialogue or snarling this and that. Cool. Uh, uh, well, the you, first one, do you have any, any the, the number like one one is that I don't always know when I'm writing a sentence. If I write, uh, come here, I don't know if I'm going to say he cried or he, or he stomped off. So my punctuation at the end of dialogue is always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a period when then I said he said, or, you know, and, and I just, it's because as I'm writing along, I, I don't, I haven't decided yet what, how I'm going to do it. So I, I don't think about the punctuation. Um, so that's the, that's the number one thing, but there's lots of things. There's, there's certain phrases probably involving gazes and being amused and things like that. that yeah. I use over and over again, and I have to go through and try to, you know, find new wording for some of them. <laughs> So yeah, I have I have a number. Reading of out loud, like reading out loud makes those kinds of things jump out at you too, and you realize you've said three right times on exactly. The same page. That is one of the really good uses of reading. He smiled. He smiled again. He smiled. He smiled. Well, he you smiled. know, at least you put in a get. <laughs> like that. That's one thing I found out that I think is really interesting. I found out that both from the editing and the writing, if you want to repeat something, if you indicate to the reader that the character in the world know it's being repeated. It's not as bad as if you don't, you know what I mean? So if you say, you know, if you say something and then you have the guy reflect on it again, the reader doesn't mind that it's there twice, you know, they smiled again. is not so bad the second time, 
But if you just say smiley smiled over again, or you, you know, repeat the same thoughts over again, without letting the reader know that the universe knows it's there a second time on purpose, it can be really annoying. So, so that's, you know, I have to either remove the extra ones or indicate that they're there for a reason. You know, he smiled even more. <laughs> so this this series uh, started some time ago. You've now caught yeah, up to, yeah, <laughs> to the far future in which it was set. What um, have you been pleased with the response to it over the years? Did it has it reached readers? Well, that you hoped it I would? have. Let me see if I can find this. I thought I put it somewhere where I could find it quickly. I got a review on Amazon like two days ago that is clear. I mean, you, I couldn't possibly imagine a better review. I'll read it to you. It's very short. I wept like a child, joyful and with awe. We serve an awesome God with hope that springs eternal. Thank you so much for the good, the true, and the beautiful. You are a faithful steward of his gift. I cannot recommend this these books enough, like Potter and Narnia at last. I thought, boy, that's a really good review. <laughs> I, I That's better than some you yeah, get on Amazon. Oh my gosh. Sure. You know, I mean I thought you know, a lot of people there are people who really like the series. And about half of my, my fans are like grown men and then you know there's also, you know, teens and so I don't, because of, you know, being indie, I don't reach as many teens as I would like. I think they would be more popular with teens if I could put them in front of teens. The teens who've read them like them, but um, most of my, my actual readers are adults or people who... I think that's true of yeah, a lot of young adult yeah. fiction, well, Some actually. people will buy them for their, their, their kids or their nephews or something. But I should say one of the reasons that particular... Uh, so in the original game there was a scene where my character went to a place called the foothills of heaven well that's what i called it i think it was called something else at the time but it was the concept that there's a place right outside the door of heaven where people wait for their loved ones so they can go in together and that concept seems to have really resonated with readers like i got notes from beta readers in the middle of the night saying how much they idea and how they'd wait for their <laughs> wife you know what i mean it was really touching and that it was really hard to get this to work because when i first wrote the first draft of the book these these scenes in heaven were really flat they were like uninteresting which right outside of heaven which they really shouldn't be and i had to redesign a thread of questions through the whole story to make it so that what happened there was the answer to things my character was wondering about and then set up a whole kind of how she got there that was very different than the original. So, that, Well, not very different, but emotionally different so that it, it had a challenge to it. So that by the time it got there, the scene seemed valuable rather than, hey, look, we went to a special place. Okay, we're done. <laughs> so I think that's part of what, what this person was reacting to was this scene where she's going to for her birthday, she gets to go visit a friend of hers who died and have a conversation. <laughs> well, this might tie in now as we get closer to the end here. And I, I warned you about the big philosophical questions because obviously I think for most of us, the response from readers is one of the reasons that we write, but let me put that to you. Why, why do you write 
why do any of us write? Why, why do, you know, your husband's a writer, I'm a writer. Why do we do this thing? <laughs> and, uh, oh, sometimes I really wonder that. And um, why uh, fantasy in, in your case uh, specifically? Well, I, I once, when I was in college, when I was through college, I wasn't intending to be a writer. I wanted to write, but I, I was thinking I'd be a teacher when I was younger. I wanted to work with animals. Because partially my dad had such an attitude about you can't make a living as a writer that I, I didn't even think it was an option for much of my life. I just thought I'd write, but I, you know, I wouldn't be a writer, if you understand what I mean. And I sat down and had a conversation with a friend, and, and I, I was talking about this subject of, you know, we were seniors, we we're going to graduate, you know. And while I, And he said to me, you shouldn't be a writer unless you can't do anything else. And he didn't mean you're not capable of other things. He meant that you couldn't not do it. And I thought about that for a while over the next months. And I thought, you know, if I'm not a writer, I'll just be a, a dreamy person who's not thinking about the normal world, kind of absent-minded and unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I'm a writer, then that very same quality becomes my major asset of spending my time thinking out stories, how they should go, what's dramatic, you know, things like that. So part of the reason was I was going to do it anyway. I might as well do it and be good at it and enjoy it and share it, you know. But part of the reason is, you know, we, we get these wonderful ideas and we want to share them. You know, and I try to write things that, that have moments of joy and, you know, have that are fun. And parts of them are really funny. I have a narrator and sometimes she contacts me to say she, she doesn't know she's going to get through a line because she can't stop laughing. I always think that's you know, a really nice thing. Usually it's John's <laughs> character who's making her laugh. He's kind of way over the top outrageous. But, um, you know, so it, I think it's, you know, it's a chance to bring joy, you know, you and and, and fun. And it, to a certain degree, all these stories of, of fairy tales and creatures and, you know, they're kind of half remembered. I often feel like I want to give a chance to have them be remembered. Legend and Lore of the Hudson Highland is the name of the book I couldn't remember. And, and Jonathan Crook is the name of the author. Uh, but that kind of thing, I mean, it, it's it's like these things are there and it's almost like, all this effort has gone into them for so many people for so much time. And this is our chance to kind of bring it forward and, and make sure it's not forgotten, you know? So I think a lot of it is that, and it's just fun. I mean, I, I've liked every book I've done, but I've never enjoyed what I did as much as the 20 chapters where Rachel Griffin is at home in England. I don't know why I, she's the daughter of a Duke, but, He's a Duke of the Wise, which means he's part of the magical world rather than a Duke of, you know, I don't know, normal people would know about him. And they live in, in Dartmoor in this town that, that the Duke owns because it's, you know, old fashioned Duke, not the, the, the world of the wise is more old fashioned than our modern world. But I just had it was just such a joy to, you know, put the various parts of what the Moors looked like and, you know, the horses and. I had one chapter, it's just her and her father walking around looking at the horses and the other things on their land. And one of my beta readers thought I should cut a large part of it because he thought it was boring. 
but I've gotten more compliments <laughs> on that than everything except the scene where they go to heaven. People really like just her dad and her walking around on the looking at the horses. <laughs> I mean, they're talking, they're having a conversation <laughs> about something rather sad while they're going. But it was really touching to me how many people, the very feeling I loved about these beautiful houses and their beautiful estates and the woods and the lake and you know, the, the, it, it seemed to resonate was resonate with uh, some of the readers too. So I was really glad I, I decided to leave it in. And what are you working on now? Well, so this is like a 21 book series. And so my current plan, and I may change it, but this is my current plan is I want to try to write book seven to 12 all at once before I put out another book. Are these, what? what's the average length of well, this Well, the book? last one was 600 pages, but usually they're more like four. The reason the last one was so long is it's like the season end. Like I, it was the end of her freshman year, and I tried to tie up a lot of things that I had introduced that were not in the original game because I didn't need them for later books. So I, I tried to tie up a lot of things, and I actually really had two books of material, and I condensed it because I wanted to get on to the rest of what comes later. So it, it came out a little longer and it's more dramatic and has a huge Donnybrook at the end and things like that. And a, a, a hurling game between the, the students and the supernatural creatures who are attacking them. It's got a lot of fun stuff in it. But uh, the next four books exist, like a lot of the book already exists as emails from the original game. I'll get back to why that's not as easy, as good a thing as it sounds like at first. So of the next six books, I thought if I could, and they might be a little short, I might be able to keep them a little shorter. If I could get them all done, instead of, see, I, I didn't put out, in the last five years, I only put out two books because of the lockdown and my mom and other things. I, with Amazon, I can't even really reach the people who liked the series before to let them know it's there. And so I thought that rather than doing this piecemeal where a book comes out and then a long period goes by and another book comes out, if I could rapid release six books over like a year and a half, I might have a chance of actually keeping my readers aware of the fact that the next book came out. So that was, that's my motive mm -hmm. for doing it this way. That I, I just feel that, you know, that even if it's a long break before they come out, that it might be better to have them come out all at once. The, thing about the game email scenes is you think it would be uh, easy, but because there's no description or very little, there's no emotions and the mood is often different than what I need for the book. Sometimes I have to rewrite them a lot more than a scene I write from scratch. And where can people find you online to you know, keep track of everything you're doing. Uh, I have a new uh, Substack now. I actually have five of them. But, uh, one of them is uh, one of them is essays and articles, and it's called uh, "Defending the Wood Perilous." One of them is called "The Roanoke Glass," and it's the Roanoke Glass is the name of the newspaper that's in the story uh, in the, the school newspaper from the Unexpected Enlightenment books. And one of them is the art and craft of writing, which I, I have my writing book up on there. The writing book and the, the videos that go with the book were done for Superversive Press. So they're not, they're kind of orphaned at the moment. 
So I've been putting them up on there. Uh, I also have a blog, but I haven't really posted on it in a long time. <laughs> the books are on Amazon at the moment. I, I'm really thinking I might make them available some more direct way too, but right now that's where they're. And any social media? Uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, I kind of Facebook, I try to be nice to everybody. Twitter, it's kind of, I don't necessarily encourage fans to look me up on Twitter unless they already agree with my politics. <laughs> it's, it's not as, not as, uh, not as gentle, but, um, uh, I, I do interact with a lot of people on Facebook. I have a little group on Facebook for my books. Uh, and, uh, my character has her own page. She sometimes does things as herself. It's funny because people will, will write her, like like guys will write her like date me notes. And I, I write back these funny notes where I explain, <laughs> I'm actually an imaginary character. <laughs> 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 she does have a pretty picture. Well, from the cover. <laughs> well, um, thanks so much for being on, Jaji. That, that was a great conversation. I hope yes, you enjoyed it. Yes, very much. Thank you. And thanks again to Jaji for that great conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. I hope you did as well, as I hope you enjoy all of these episodes of The World Shapers. Uh, one thing I didn't mention off the top is that The World Shapers will be changing format slightly in the new year. Um, I will continue to talk to science fiction and fantasy authors, but I will also be talking to authors uh, in other genres. It'll probably be shorter. It'll be more focused on specific books, new releases, as opposed to the sort of big picture uh, creative process thing I've been doing. Um, and it'll probably also have a video component so that I can uh, uh, probably not stream it, but I can post it to my YouTube channel, which is just youtube.com slash Edward Willett, which is getting very close to a thousand subscribers, which is the point at which it monetizes. I'm like 16 subscribers away or something like that, uh, which reminds me, if you pop over there and subscribe to my uh, YouTube channel, that would be much appreciated. And one of the things that uh, I do regularly is walk around my home city here of uh, Regina, Saskatchewan, and blab much as I am right now <laughs> about the things that I'm doing, as well as what I see on those walks. So check that out. Uh, then you can find me online at edwardwillett.com. You can find me on Twitter, X, at ewillett. You can find me on Instagram at edwardwillettauthor. And you can find me on Facebook at edward.willett. You can find this podcast online at theworldshapers.com, on Twitter at theworldshapers, on Facebook at theworldshapers. And you can find Shadowpaw Press, which I talked about earlier, at shadowpawpress.com. You can find it on Twitter at Shadowpaw Press, on Instagram at Shadowpaw Press. It also has a YouTube channel, but I don't have anything there really, so I won't plug that just yet. And Endless Sky Books, which I also mentioned, uh, you can find at endless-sky-books.com. If you'd like to hire me as an editor, uh, that's where you would go. Or just contact me through this podcast. Either way, uh, if you're looking for an editor, I, I do do freelance editing and would be... Uh, you know, happy to say help you out potentially if I have the time and and I'm able to fit it in. So uh, that's it for this episode of the World Shapers. Uh, there's I can't remember what episode I'm on, but there's two or three more left in this format. Then it will be Christmas, and then after the holidays, I will start back up uh, with uh, the new World Shapers. It'll still be called the World Shapers. If you're subscribed to it, you'll still get notified about it. But it'll have a slightly different focus and a slightly broader. Uh, much broader, probably, um, selection of guests um, talking not specifically about the creative process, although I'm sure that will come up, but about their latest books and wherever those conversations take us. So 
look for that in the new year. But in the meantime, please uh, come back for the next few of these uh, World Shapers. The World Shapers. And um, yeah, that's it for now. So, <laughs> bye. <laughs>